Well, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, depending on when you're listening to this. This is, um, I don't know if it's the first of what hope I hope will be a series of podcasts, but uh, maybe it is. So, hello. I am Taylor Entz, the pastor of Sojourn Galleria Church in Houston, Texas. And, you know, we have just, um, we've, we've moved around. We've, we've flexed and been moved around and been listening to God and trying to, to heed his, his direction and obey it. Um, as as COVID in 2020 has 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 entered our lives, and one of the things that we've done is we have stopped meeting all together every Sunday, at least for now, because of of building arrangements. And so we're in house churches right now, and we're we're also we're regularly gathering all together as well, but not every every week. And so because of that. Um, we walk through a text together as we worship every Sunday in our house churches. But, and I and I give notes. I supply notes and other things to the to the parish leaders. But um, want to encourage them that they have everything they need in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and the body. And so, don't want to give them too much. But I, I'm I am just that said. It's 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 wonderful and rich. But I'm 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 personally missing. Uh, and I think my people might be too a little bit, but I don't know. Uh, I've heard from a few of them to this effect, but <clears throat> might be missing just, I, I'm certainly missing teaching in the same way and preaching every Sunday and so on and so forth. And so this is kind of an outlet for me to get to, after we go through a text on Sunday morning as, as house churches, to get to teach on this for, on that text for a few minutes, maybe 30 minutes or so. And, uh, and I think it, this podcast will not be limited to the weekly message that we all look at together, uh, but it, it'll be at least that. And then it will, I'll move on to um, God willing to other things as well um, on this podcast. But so, yay, happy inaugural podcast. Here we are at the beginning of 2021. I, I pray that it's a better year than last year. Um, and But in reflection on last year and at the beginning of this year, I really, as I was praying about what to start the year with, I really, I had had Psalm 23 in the hopper last year and what a comforting psalm it is and what a wonderful psalm. And, uh, but still think sort of in the wake of last year that it, and at the beginning of this year, it'd be a, just a great psalm to start the year off with. And such a comforting uh, psalm, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which of course is in the, in the middle of that, of the psalm. But what we're going to do is we're just going to take one verse per week and it's going to be a six-week thing, of course, and it's six verses in Psalm 23. We'll be done February 7th, God willing, and, and then from there we'll go on to, to probably back to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 16. We left off in the fall and walked through that up until Easter week and then finish it in early summer, hopefully. So um, that's the plan. We'll let the Lord lead us as he does David, his little sheep, uh, in this psalm. And, you know, during this time where fear and uncertainty, you're still... They don't rain like they were raining. They never have rained, but they seem to be raining in this past year a little bit. But while fear and uncertainty uh, are still still very present in our lives and things are uprooted, we need comfort. We have it. We have it in this psalm, um, and that's in our shepherd. So this first verse, it's nine words in my translation, the ESV in the English, but it's uh, it's way more terse or compact, maybe I should say, or brief in the Hebrew. It's four words. Uh, Psalm 23.1, which we're just going to look at for the next few minutes today, is four words in the Hebrew. Uh, and yet, the key to life is compressed into these four words. Um, 
it starts this wonderful psalm out for a reason. It's sort of the starting blocks for this this psalm. Kenneth Bailey in his The Good Shepherd, a book, says, quote, Without hesitation, the sheep confidently follow the shepherd, knowing that with him in the lead all will be well. The rest of the psalm expounds the meaning of this freighted first line. Now he's talking about the first line, Psalm 23, verse 1. And I just want to break this first verse into three movements. It's really, it's really two movements, if we want to simplify. The Lord is my shepherd. The first um, strophe, if you want to use that, or line, the Lord is my shepherd. This wonderful affirmation by David. And then the consequence of that to him is I shall not want. I shall not want. So we see Lord as, as shepherd, and then we see Lord as provider. Um, but I'm going to break it down into three movements, um, and I think you'll see why as I, as I move through these movements. But the Lord, movement one, is my shepherd, movement two, and then, and then the final movement, I shall not want. So just stopping first, to, to pausing first to think about this first word, the Lord. It's one word in the Hebrew, Yahweh, the covenant name for God. Not a Lord is my shepherd. And again, we... We have to put ourselves, whenever we study anything, but certainly scripture, it's so, it's so right to put ourselves into the context that the, not just the psalm, but that the scripture was written in. And for David, he, he was writing among the Canaanites. He was writing uh, surrounded by larger nations, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, um, the Assyrians were going to be waxing soon as an, as an empire, and so on and so forth, the Persians. And... Um, you had these polytheistic nations surrounding David, surrounding Israel, and yet they worshipped the one true God, the only God, the creator of heaven and of earth, like Jonah tells the sailors in uh, chapter one of, of that great short prophet when they say, okay, which, which God do you worship? And he says, I worship the God of everything, the God that made the sea that we're riding on right now that he's putting into tumult that... Uh, and so, the, and then, of course, it strikes them with great fear. You worship that God. You know that God. Yeah, this this is the true God that has revealed Himself to Israel alone, and and Israel is to reveal that God in His wonderful ways to the world. Um. So David doesn't start off with a Lord, surrounded by um, these other nations that 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 worship many gods. He says the Lord the only God who has all power, the undisputed sovereign. He is my shepherd. Now, Dean Overman uh, opens his case for, uh, opens his a case for the divinity of Jesus with these words. It's a, it's a fairly long quote, but stay with me. Again, this isn't a sermon, it's a podcast. So I'll be a little bit more chatty and a little bit more lectury, but hopefully not boringly so uh, than I would in a sermon, a little less proclamatory. Um, and can I use the word declamatory as well? I won't, I won't be as declamatory. But uh, consider the size and vastness of the universe, Dean says. Our home galaxy, the Milky Way, is a spiral of two or three billion stars like our sun. Billion with a B. You and I are spinning at an immense rate of speed in this universe with the distance. And can I, can I say we're spinning on the axis at over a thousand miles an hour of the Earth, but we're also careening around the sun at an even greater speed. So we're spinning... And in two directions at two different speeds. Okay, you and I are spinning at an immense rate of, uh, of speed in this universe with the distance, and, not, and that's not to mention the, the redshift uh, speed at which we're spinning as a galaxy as well, with the distance across our galaxy being approximately 100,000 
light years. That's just our galaxy. Our known universe is approximately 12 to 15 billion light years to its edges, and it is continually getting larger at a tremendous rate of speed. That's the redshift. A light year is the distance light travels moving at the rate of 186,000 miles per second for one year. At this speed, light would circle Earth at the equator, about 25,000 miles, seven times in one second. Astronomically speaking, our own galaxy is very small indeed. The largest galaxy discovered to date is found in a cluster of galaxies known as Abel 2029. In that cluster, there is one galaxy that is 60 times the size of our own. Possessing more than 100 trillion stars, it is about 1 billion light years from us. Beyond Abel 2029, there are billions of other additional galaxies and stars in all directions. The most recent evidence gathered with evidence from the Hubble Space Telescope indicates that there are about 50 billion galaxies in the universe. 50 billion galaxies in the universe, perhaps more, and each of them contains on average 2 to 4 billion stars. So 50 billion galaxies containing each 2 to 4 billion stars. You do the math. In an effort to aid our imagination, we estimate that there are about... Now, check this out. This is where he brings it in and the numbers stop. So listen to this. This will grab you. In an effort to aid our imagination, we estimate that there are about 10,000 grains in a handful of sand. So you pick up a handful of sand. That's about 10,000 grains, depending on how big your hand is, of sand. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand found on all the beaches of the earth. Pause. Drop jaw. When Christians claim that Jesus of Nazareth was God in human form, they are claiming that he is the incarnation of the supreme being behind the vast beauty and expansion of space and all that it contains. And in an amazing understatement, he concludes this paragraph by saying, this is a remarkable concept. It truly, truly is. Stepping away from the idea and fact and truth that Jesus Christ is this Yahweh, this covenant God, which we'll return to in a bit, that David is referring to, just that, that massiveness of the universe that we are aware of for the first time in history, giving us a slightly better idea of the power of God. And this massive God, the Lord, that, that is the covenant God, the Lord, the creator who has all power that spoke the universe into being that David is referring to here, that he's talking about. And then of course, later in the Psalm, we see that he begins to talk to, um, now, moving on from just this amazing God, and we'll get to his covenant name in a second. Um, notice just to the order in which David says these things. He starts with the Lord. We tend to put ourselves first, but this is backwards, and it's the path to death. I was just listening to an audio book talking about the shift from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, and one of the shifts was God was the measure of all things in the, in the Middle Ages, and the shift to the Renaissance became man is the measure of all things. That's a literal quote from uh, Pro- Protagoras, a, a Greek um, that they had begun to re- rediscover in the Renaissance, which is part of, the, part of what gave rise to the Renaissance, the rediscovery of Greek and Roman culture and texts. But that's beside the point. We, in our sin, 
Um, sin, one of the, I think one of the chief things that sin does is it focuses us in on ourselves. We become the center of the universe. We become the measure of all things. Who do I, go, who do I look, to, look at in a picture first? Where do my eyes go? It, they go to me. I could stare at myself in the mirror for hours. It would be, I would be very hard-pressed to stare at somebody else for hours in the mirror. That's a problem. That's not how we were created. It's what sin has done to us. It's curved us inward on ourselves. That's from Augustine. But here, the way that David starts this psalm, he's reminding us of what needs to be first if our lives are to go well. In pain, uh, in when there's no pain to be found. In the highs and in the lows, in the vicissitudes of life, to be content, to be strengthened, to have courage, to be blessed and truly happy and full of joy, and to enter into life everlasting with the living God as we were made to be, we need to remember that the Lord is first. Putting ourselves first is backwards. It's the path to death. Um, But how does the Bible start? In the beginning, God. And this is the place that David returns us to. To underscore that, in the Hebrew uh, language, word order is important, more so, I would say, than in English. But that... um, Take move that aside. Word order is important, and um, Hebrew is different than English in this as well. That uh, in English we have the word, the typical word order or syntax. That's a word order. Syntax means word order um, is subject verb, but in Hebrew it's flipped. So you usually start the sentence with a verb. So when you start the sentence in Hebrew with the subject, it's often not always emphatic. It's emphasized. It's like underlining or highlighting that. Now, the ancient Hebrews didn't have highlighters or underliners or italics, so that's the way. Word positioning is one of the ways that they would emphasize something. So David, starting with the Lord, literally the word Yahweh, is a way of emphasizing it and saying there's nothing more important. I start here. I don't start with me. I start with the Lord. Um, He is my shepherd, no one else, nothing else. So in, if I were preaching this, I would, I would literally say, and I say this now, I mean, it's my first podcast, so sorry if I'm not savvy at knowing exactly what to say or how to say it, but just take some time, myself included, right now as I, as I even speak, to, to repent of anything that you may be washing the dishes right now, you may be taking a shower, and hopefully the, the phone is somewhere where you're staying dry, but uh, you, you may be driving, you may be taking a jog, but take some time now to repent of anything else that you've put in first place lately over the Christmas holidays, um, maybe during COVID, maybe since before COVID. There is only uh, one who can shepherd you. But think if you have looked to anyone or anything else to do that, to provide for your needs, to provide for your protection, to secure you. I know I have. Ask the good shepherd to show you and he will. He'll do it. Then take some time just to simply say, not to grovel, but to simply say, I'm so sorry, Lord, forgive me. And in Christ, he can and he will. Christ has paid the price. You don't need to hold on to that guilt. He became that guilt for you. Let it go. But do ask him to show you and then confess it. You alone are my shepherd. Help me to look to you alone for my needs. Um, You know, the virus is not first. The election is not first. America is not first. The riots, Black Lives Matter. Um, jobs, health, children, uh, school, what kid, what school my kids are going to get into. Those things are not first. Many of those things are good, but they're secondary. There's only one thing 
that's necessary, like Jesus told, told Martha. There's only one thing that's primary, and David shows us that here, the Lord. Um, we must let David retrain us now and return us to the shepherd of our souls. Um, this doesn't just speak to priority or to God's power. It also speaks to his faithfulness. The, um, I've, mentioned, I've alluded to it a couple times, but I haven't delved in. The original context of, see, David doesn't just say God. He says the Lord. He says Yahweh. He uses the covenant name for God. And the, and the original context for uh, God's first revelation of this name. If we're going to know who God is, we have to know his names. And if we're going to know his name, he has to reveal those names to us. We can't just discern them from nature. We can know things about him. He's powerful. He's beautiful, etc. But we cannot know what makes him tick, who he is. And it, when you know someone's name, that, especially in the ancient Near East, that means you, you can begin to have a relationship with them. If you don't know someone's name, I don't care how many times you've seen them, how many conversations you've had, it, your relationship stays surface level. You, if you, unless you call them by their name, hey, dude, hey, bro, that, like that's, that's not going to cut it. You have to know, and by in God, in giving us his name, in giving Moses his name, and, and through Moses, Israel, he's inviting them into a relationship. And so um, he reveals this name to Israel through Moses the, for the first time in Exodus, beginning of Exodus, Exodus 3 and 4, in the passage about the bush. And, you know, where rivers of ink have been spilled, uh, over this name, but let me just say this. It, it, it is translated well as um, Moses says, who shall I say sent me when I go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and say, let, let, let your slaves go. Who, you know, I'm not going to my own authority. Who, you're the God of the bush. Like, what, Give me a name here. Well, who are you? And he says, I am that I am, or I am. Um, and of course, that refers to the fact that God alone defines himself. Nothing else defines God. He is the ultimate uncreated being, and he gives definition to all things, not the other way around. And of course, we see that, as I've touched on it just a second ago, we see that even in the way that David starts this psalm, the Lord. That's the beginning, the way the Bible starts, in the beginning, God. The way the Bible begins, the way this, this psalm, this wonderful psalm of comfort, of deep comfort and security begins, um, reminds us that God is the beginning and the definition of all things, not the other way around. Um, so to let that sort of reset our priorities. Yes, it, it means that because he is, all other things are. And without him, nothing, nothing would be that is. Um, it is, it is. There's a lot of ontological import to this name. But, you know, context is king, right? Context is key whenever you're reading anything, certainly the scriptures. And one of the things that I think is missed a lot of times is you go back to the original passage here where he reveals his name for the first time to, to Moses. And um, the name could just as easily in the Hebrew and maybe more easily actually, because it's in the imperfect, be translated. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, that's okay. Just let it pass you by. If you know something about Hebrew, that will mean something to you. It's not a completed tense. The imperfect is not a completed tense. Um, it, it doesn't just mean I am that I am. You could just as easily translate it, maybe more easily, as I will be that I will be. Now, that doesn't make as much sense on its own, but it's not, it doesn't stand alone because what he's just told Moses a few verses before is I will be with you. Not just you, Moses, but with Israel. They are my people. You are my people. And I am the God who will be with you. I will not leave you. I will be with you. And then he goes on in two verses 
to say, I will be. So it's not a name that stands alone. It's a name that expresses God's faithfulness, his steadfastness, and the fact that he is a God who, and literally, does he keep his word? Absolutely. He keeps his word in the desert as they start to grumble and complain. He meets with Moses. He gives them the law, even as they create an idol and disobey him and disavow him and grumble against him. He, for 40 years, remains with this disobedient people in a cloud, in a fire, giving them manna every day, feeding them. Their shoes didn't wear out on their feet. Their children make it to the promised land. It's amazing. I mean, the desert is a place of death, but in that place of death, he brings water from the rock. He sustains them. He is the God who will be with his people. And of course, seven centuries later, seven centuries after Moses and the Israelites and the Hebrews pass through Midian, the Midianite desert and into the promised land, Isaiah takes us to the next level in chapter seven, when he says, a sign will be given to you um, of Messiah. And that will be that he will be born of a virgin. And his name will be called what? Emmanuel, which literally means God with us in the Hebrew. So that is who God is. He's, he's, it's a callback to his name here. He is the God who will be with us. He is the God who is with us. He is the God who will not leave us or forsake us. And even using that language, of course, casts us ahead to Emmanuel, to Jesus, who says in, at the end of Matthew 28, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even into the end of the age. So that, again, we don't want to hear that in a vacuum. If we've been reading the scriptures, if we know the revelation of God, of his own name to his own people, we understand that that is Jesus saying, I am. Literally, he says, I am the God who will never leave you or forsake you. He is claiming to be Yahweh, the Lord, David's God, the only God the God who is faithful, who has come to live with us, who has given us his spirit, who is in heaven now and who will return for his own. This is the Lord. Okay. I've got a lot more here. Question to myself and to you now is, to myself, not to you, is am I going to say any of it? And the answer is no, because I don't want this to be too long. Let me just say this. Let me just brief, let me just sort of wrap up what I'm looking at here. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, I think. A key, um, a key to this name as well is this. That toward the end of Exodus, in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses, right after God's people have disavowed him and worshiped uh, a God of their own making, and he's ready to destroy them. Moses intercedes for them. And, and then he says, look, I want to see you. I need to know you more. Show me yourself. And what God does is he reveals more of who he is in his covenant nature, in his faithfulness and in his power and in his love to, to Moses. And what he starts off with, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And the first word that he starts off with is, I'm a God who is merciful. Racham. And that comes from the word for womb, a woman's womb. It's a, t- a word of tenderness and compassion. And it's actually, compassion is the, the emotion that's most um, ascribed to Jesus when he comes on the scene. I think it appears 11 times in the four gospels. He's moved with compassion. His guts are tugged in the Hebrew. In the, in the Greek, rather. 
uh, when he sees his people suffering and like sheep without a shepherd. And there, there it is. Jesus is a shepherd. He's the great shepherd who also becomes a sheep to rescue us, right? To become that fall guy for us, to become that slain sheep. Um, but he is a God who is merciful and gracious. Um, gracious essentially means the, the, same, the same thing, a very similar thing to merciful. And um, what is God saying? He's saying, what makes me tick, what is at my core is that I love to show mercy. I love to give favor when people don't deserve favor. And I love to be gracious. I'm tender. I'm full of compassion. I'm moved when... Uh, I love giving guilty people the good things they don't deserve. I'm moved when I see people suffering because of sin. I love to forgive. I love to move toward people, my people, humanity, humans, my creatures, my image bearers. When I see them racked and broken by sin and suffering, I love to move toward them to take my suffering, to take their suffering and even their sin upon myself. It's what makes God tick. And we see that manifest in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more basic to God's constitution. That's, that's who God is. And that's why the name of Jesus, which means God saves, tells us everything we need to know about God. He is the God who saves. He's the God who move toward, moves toward us. He's the God who becomes one of us. He's the God who takes our sin and suffering upon and into himself. He's the God who nails it to the cross and buries it and rises victorious over it. So don't think that if you're suffering, even because of your own sin, don't think that God is a God who's repulsed by that. He came, he moved heaven and earth to come towards you and to move near to you and to be with you and to provide a way out for you through his very presence, through his very heart, through his very shed blood and torn body for you. Um, this is what the, all this is wrapped up in the covenant name for God that he reveals to, to Israel through Moses and then to us um, ultimately through Jesus Christ. You know, when Robin and I came back from Scotland, we had some friends that um, were entangled in some serious sins that became very public. And a lot of Christians, people that called themselves Christians who bore the name of Jesus, that's what Christians are, right? We're supposed to be like our Savior. Um, we're not, none of us are like, none of us is like our Savior in every way, even in most ways, but we're supposed to be. And we call ourselves with his name. And a lot of people they call themselves Christians, moved away from our friends uh, during this time. They distance themselves. That's the opposite of what God does. He moves toward us in our sin, and his name is Jesus. So I have very little time for the next two points, but that's okay. Um, I don't want this podcast to be too long. Um, the Lord is my shepherd. Who is this self-existent primary being, this God of David? He's not only David's God, he's David's shepherd. This is really astounding. God loves calling himself a, a, a shepherd and the shepherd of Israel throughout the, the Old Testament. And then, of course, he comes on the scene and says in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Again, let's not read that ever again. Let's not hear those words of Jesus or think about him saying, I am the good shepherd without knowing, without thinking about Psalm 23, without thinking about David saying, there's one who is the shepherd and that's the creator God. That's Yahweh. That's the covenant God. And so it's into that context, and that's sort of strewn throughout the Old Testament, God constantly calling his people back to himself as their shepherd. Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah, other places, uh, all throughout the Psalms. And uh, Jesus steps into that and says, I am the good shepherd. Okay, he's, he's claiming 
to be the one true God. That's who God is. But the fact that David is saying, yeah, that one God, the God of all power who flung the stars into space, who spoke all things into being, who is not only all powerful, but all holy. Yeah, he's my shepherd. And that uh, Spurgeon said, the sweetest word of the whole is that monosyllable, my. It's just one stroke of the pen in the Hebrew. It's just one, it looks like an apostrophe, my shepherd. The fact that David would say, not only is God a shepherd, that's amazing to call the God of the universe who has all power a shepherd, what? But then to say he's my shepherd. Uh, Ken Bailey says, this Psalm has a unique feature. No sheep is ever taken out to pasture alone. The cost of the labor involved would be too prohibitive. A flock is thereby always assumed. But in this famous Psalm, the focus is on the individual. That is truly astounding, especially in a very communal culture as David was in, in the, in the ancient Near East, um, to say that God is not just the shepherd or our shepherd. No, he says, God is my shepherd. And friends, I want you to be able to say that with David and in Christ, and in Christ alone, he can be and he is. So run to Jesus now, if you have not, or if you have run to him again. Um, to call God a herder of sheep seems highly disrespectful, but it's not. God's word through David trains us and teaches us otherwise. God is pleased to look after his sheep. They're precious to him. Dallas Willard, in his book, Life Without Lack, says, in other words, I'm in the care. So when we read the words, the Lord is my shepherd, we should understand it to mean this. I'm in the care of someone else. I'm not the one in charge. Again, um, Shepherd isn't the only thought. My shepherd. Jesus, God, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, it's said of some intellectuals that they loved humanity but hated humans. Paul Johnson makes this point in intellectuals over and over again as he looks at different intellectuals of the 19th and 20th century and earlier. Um, but God is the opposite of that. He comes down into the nitty-gritty of our circumstances, the dirt and darkness and sin and suffering of our lives, into the atomic structure of it all, and he enters it and he bears it. And he promises to redeem it and to restore it. He's my shepherd. He is, he is all about tending to me, helping me, feeding me, leading me, rescuing me. We're going to go through all that over the next five, six weeks together. How does he do this? He does this through Jesus Christ. God become man. Jesus is God's word and the perfect expression of this truth. And as we've said, Jesus not only is the great shepherd of the sheep and therefore identifying himself with this one God and saying, I am this one God, I am the son of this one God, but he's also the son of David. He literally comes from the line of David, who was a, among other things, before he was a king, a shepherd. So David knows what it means to say, the Lord is my shepherd. No matter what you, how responsible you are for other things or people, no matter what is on your plate, no matter how good or powerful of a person, you need a shepherd. And that shepherd is God. If you're letting anyone else or anything else shepherd you, you've gone wrong. That shepherd will fail you, but God will not. David knew that as a shepherd, he needed a shepherd. So I think one of the chief virtues in the kingdom of God is dependence. And yet we, especially in America, have enshrined independence. And so it's hard for us to hear that we need to depend. But God made Adam perfect and he made him to be totally dependent on him. And we began to go astray in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve looked at something and started to think independently from God and his word and his person and his goodness. 
Um, when Jesus comes on the scene as the perfect man, the second Adam, without sin, the only person on earth since Adam and Eve to be without sin, he doesn't show us the life of a Superman or of an independent person. He's utterly dependent on the Father. In fact, at one point he says, I only do what my Father's doing and I only say what I hear him saying. He's utterly dependent. He's constantly going out to quiet places to listen to his father and commune with him. He's constantly speaking with him. He's constantly abiding in his father. And then he calls us to abide in him. So he calls us to a life of dependence and a good sheep will just depend on the shepherd. What does a good shepherd do? Let's get practical. He cares for his sheep. God cares for you. He makes it his primary business. Can I say that? to care for you. I mean, that's what Jesus shows us about who God is, right? Um, Let me, again, it's not as long, but let me quote somewhat at length from Dane Ortland, who wrote this beautiful book last year, Gentle and Lowly, and I cannot recommend the book highly enough. A compassionate doctor who's traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He's, he has had his medical equipment flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases, get this guys, his joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin goes so far as to quote, argue that Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. This is what Jesus shows us. Come to me all who are weary. That's what he's quoting from Isaiah 55. That's what God says to us. And he says it in the person of Jesus Christ. Stop trying to do things on your own. Run to Jesus. I remember, um, and I said this wasn't going to be 40 minutes, but it is. Sorry. Hopefully we'll get to the place. I'll get to the place where um, I'm using the royal we here where I can do a 30 minute podcast, but for now it's 40. Um, I remember listening a few months ago to Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire guy, Jim Cimbala, and he was here in town and he was just talking about Jesus' first miracle, John 2, at, at Cana, close to where he grew up, Nazareth. And he just, he just asked this question that was almost embarrassingly simple. He said, you know, Jesus, he saves the party. He saves, he helps the whole family of the groom save face by not running out of wine. And not only that, but he makes them best wine that's probably ever touched human lips. And tons of it. I mean, tons and tons and tons and tons of it. 180, 200 gallons of amazing wine. And he just, Jim sort of steps back and he says, well, well, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Okay, so we could give a lot of answers to that, right? I mean, it's kind of a head scratcher. And he just said it happened because Jesus was invited to the party. In other words, none of that would have happened if Jesus had not been invited and what he goes on to say and apply as a good pastor is you invite Jesus in. He can't, and this is, okay, don't extrapolate this too much because we're sovereignists here. We, we, we don't believe that Jesus needs to be invited into things to do things. Thank God. He's the one who makes the first move 
which is what the incarnation is all about anyway, right? He came to us. We didn't invite him. But so often, if we want God to move in our lives, we need to invite him into those spaces. And he is ready and willing. Again, Romans, I mean, Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He is knocking. He is waiting. Opening the door is simply saying, inviting him in through prayer. And prayer is just talking to God in Jesus' name. God, what do I do here? Come in here, inviting him into your thoughts. So often, you know, I, I'm in my head and my wife, my poor wife, she, I think that she knows what's in my head. She doesn't unless I tell her and I forget to tell her a lot of times. And then I, and that's a problem. And so the more, and I'm realizing, you know, it's taken me however many, 14 years going on 15, but you know, she actually really enjoys it when I let her into my can, what's rattling around up in my head and in my heart. And it helps me too inviting. Yeah, the Lord knows all things, but prayer is about inviting him in. He's waiting, inviting him into every nook and cranny, um, listening to what he's saying and doing that as we read his word, doing that as we walk throughout our day, as we abide in him, invite him in, invite him in. That's what he came for. Um, how does this amazing shepherd, my shepherd care for me, care for you, care for us? He lays his life down for the sheep. He lays his life down for the sheep. That's who Jesus is. It's what he came to do. What is the first thing John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus? When Jesus has just started his ministry, he points his disciples right to Jesus. And he says, behold, look, whenever you read behold, just, just translate, look, look, check it out, look. And they turn and look at Jesus. And he says, he could have said a lot of things, right? He could have said a lot of things. He could have described Jesus in a lot of ways. King of kings, Lord of lords. That's, you know, we were given that in Revelation. That is who Jesus is. He doesn't say that. He says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is come to be our fall guy. The, the gospels are not biographies. Most of the gospels are focused on a three-year period of God's life. Two, only two of them have birth narratives and the rest of them are three years. And most of that three years is focused on the last week a lot of those are focused on the last week of Jesus' life. In Mark chapter 3, as early as chapter 3, Mark has 16 chapters. Jesus' nemeses, the Herodians and the scribes and Pharisees, start to plot to kill, how to kill him. The God, what did Jesus say? He said, I came to die. What does Isaiah 53 tell us? The Messiah has come on a mission to live and die in our place. Jesus shows who God is preeminently, most clearly and truly. And the cross shows who he is most fully, his heart for you, for sinners and sufferers like us. Okay, closing down, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another translation of that could be, I lack nothing. I lack nothing. The old, uh, the old Scottish pastor, Alexander McLaren, McLaren, Alexander McLaren puts it briefly and beautifully. Hopefully my friend Murdo will not listen to this. He would chastise me for that horrific Scottish accent. But McLaren puts it this way. He says, for the time, desire is stilled in satisfaction. What does David say? Because of all these truths that we and I have been talking about for the past 35 minutes, the Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean for me? It means I shall not want. I won't want anything. I won't need anything. I have everything I need. That's how the New Living Translation puts it, the NLT. I have everything I need. 
What did Jesus say? I have food that you know not of. There are things that are more necessary than, than bread that goes in my mouth. The word of God. And what does that mean? If you have someone's word, you have the relationship. The re- relationship with God, his very presence through his word, Jesus Christ given to us. This, this will take me beyond the pit, the trough, the chasm of death into the far green fields of everlasting life when I awake and I see him and I'm made like him and I'm in his presence forevermore and I'll get to touch him. Wonderful, happy day. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Hebrew can also mean, and probably better means, I will lack nothing, which, which is why the, uh, the KJV and the ESV translate it, um, I shall not want. I will lack nothing. And when you say it, put it that way, not only I lack nothing, but if I have the Lord, I have everything I need, but also I will lack nothing. It's a statement of faith. It's a profession of faith. David's trust is embedded in this profession. I don't know where I'm headed. Maybe I'm headed toward the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe I'm headed toward green pastures. Maybe I'm headed toward a table set before me in the presence of my enemies. Maybe I'm headed to death. Maybe I'm headed beyond death. But one thing I know, if the Lord is my shepherd and he is, I will lack nothing. Closing down here. Ken Bailey, let me quote him one more time. He notes that in, in contrast to us living in a consumerist, a consumerist society that touts so many wants as felt needs, the wants enumerated in this passage are really needs, and they are few. And we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We're kind of we're talking about the, the, thing, the things that David lists out in the rest of the psalm. But the list includes food, drink, tranquility, rescue when lost, freedom from the fear of evil and death, a sense of being surrounded by the grace of the Lord and a permanent dwelling place in the house of God. And note this, he finishes with this line, an ever rising mountain of material possessions is not on the list. The Lord is my shepherd. I will lack nothing. I lack nothing. I shall not want. I have everything I need. Though I lose my job and family and food and very life, I have everything I need. Why? Because I have him. The maker, the maker and the rescuer and sustainer of my soul who tasted death and defeated Satan and death and sin for me and who is with me and will never leave me or forsake me. Psalm 16, 2, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And he goes on in verse five to say, the Lord is my chosen portion. Dallas Willard The overflowing sufficiency that we will experience when Yahweh is our shepherd lies in the all-sufficiency of the shepherd himself. What we need, God has an infinite supply. My friend, have you trusted in Yahweh, Jesus' care for you through his body and his blood, through his presence, by his spirit, that he lived for you, that he died for you, that he rose for you, that he's reigning now, that he's returning for you, that he makes you clean, that he calls you as you are and he will clean you up, that he calls you to follow him, to be with him, not, not to, just to obey him, yes, to obey him, but not just to do a list of do's and don'ts, but to be with him, to know him, to be in relationship. Have you trusted him? Can you say with David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
Lord, would you make that true in our lives? We bless you in Jesus' name. God bless all of you. Looking forward to this journey with you. Bye-bye.